0: Welcome back to IGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor She,
1: And I'm Jill Wine Banks, and today I'm wearing two pins for our guest. One is a Detroit hot dog, and the other is an LGBTQ plus pin in honor of her viral speech.
0: There's a lot of talk about how important federal elections are. And while that is true, it's just as true that state and local elections are just as, if not more important than federal elections. With the Supreme Court giving states more power and the Electoral Count Act making states the final arbiter of presidential elections, state and local elected officials become of paramount importance. As we head into 2022, we want to highlight more people serving in those roles and press upon you why we need to all vote for down-ballot candidates.
1: One of the local officers that we want you to get to know not only serves in state government in Michigan, but is also considered to be one of the rising superstars in Democratic politics. She is Senator Mallory McMorrow, now serving her first term in the Michigan Senate. You probably know her from her speech, which went viral, in which she answered someone who had accused her of grooming young students, and it went viral because she was unabashed in her criticism of the attack. Ever since, she has been a refreshing voice and has given us a unique perspective about what Democrats need to be doing to win elections. Previously, Senator McMorrow worked in product design, advertising, and media, and she earned her bachelor's degree in industrial design from the University of Notre Dame. One of our prior guests, Liz Smith, has been her advisor. You can hear Liz's episode by clicking on the link in our show notes or going to Apple Podcasts and searching for her name on our podcast listing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Senator McMorrow. Thank you for having me.
0: We are so excited. Um, So plenty of people have seen you on their Twitter feeds and elsewhere for your viral marks, but know nothing else about you. So I want to begin by getting a little bit, you know, deeper into who you are. Um, You grew up in White House, New Jersey, and were raised Catholic. I read that you and your mother uh, would volunteer regularly at soup kitchens outside of uh, the diocese. Talk to us about your upbringing in a Catholic household and the values you learned growing up.
2: Yeah, so I grew up White House, New Jersey. Uh, The entire town is one street, and it's in a Fairly rural part of central New Jersey. So it kind of bucks, I think, what most people think about when they think of New Jersey. Um, But my mom had me when she was 25. I am one of four kids. And we grew up in a house that was almost 250 years old, was around Mm -hmm. since the beginning of you know, the the revolution, basically. So I grew up around a lot of history. There was a Daughters of the American Revolution Cemetery down the street from us. It was very creepy, um, in a good way, a uh, town that was full of history. And we were very active in our local church. So I sang in the choir. My mom taught CCD, which is the Catholic version of Sunday school. Um, and then we kind of had a, a falling apart with our church. You know, I think my mom really wanted to instill strong values in us, but she and my my dad got divorced uh, when I was seven. And our priest made it very clear that he did not approve of that. So he took a meeting with my mom and effectively told her that she was not living up to the expectations of the church, even though she was super active and we were super active. Uh, so we moved away from it, but she really wanted us to be grounded in um, the understanding that although our lives certainly weren't perfect, you know, she was a single mom with, with kids trying to make it work, a working mom, that we we had to give back. And if we had the opportunity to give back, we absolutely should. So that meant spending time in soup kitchens. She started taking me right around when I was 10. So I was fairly young when I was first introduced to you know, the, the unhoused population and, and getting to know people who were very different than my upbringing. Um, and she also, she never locked our house. So I would come home from school every day and there was always somebody in the kitchen, like eating snacks and eating food. And it was just like a gathering place for everybody in our community, which was great. And I I didn't realize until I got much older that that's pretty abnormal, but that is who my mom was and how she raised us.
0: So it seems like there was a sense of uh, service instilled with you into uh, when you were young. You then went on to University of Notre Dame in 2004. um, And while you were there, you chose to study industrial design. um, And I read that you won a public design contest for the 2018 version of uh, the Mazda 3. Um. I can't draw anything much less like a stick <laughs> figure um, so that's really impressive. Why did you choose industrial design?
2: So I didn't know. I got to college, and I think like a lot of people, I loved art growing up whenever I would go visit my dad. I mean, I spent hours and hours and hours drawing my own comics and characters, uh, but I didn't realize that you could turn that into a career. So I got to college, and like a lot of people, I didn't know what I wanted to do right away, so I started taking – Economics classes and marketing classes thinking I would go into advertising. And then I stumbled uh, onto Riley Hall, the art and design building at Notre Dame and saw people sketching products and making models. And I asked, what the heck is this? And they explained to me, you know, industrial design is the merger of engineering and art. So it is the people who physically design the products. It's a lot of testing. So you come up with a thousand different ideas. You put them in front of people. You make physical models that people Mm – Use and play with and have feedback with. And and through this kind of iterative process, you come up with product designs. And I really, really loved it. I loved cars. I grew up with brothers and all of my friends in high school were guys just because that's who grew up around us. So as soon as I could get my license, uh, you know, I saved up as much money as I possibly could to get my first car. And I just, I loved the combination of art, Um, in a way that that people fall in love with their cars, which is very rare for a product. And I I really was was drawn to that. So yeah, I entered a competition uh, in my senior year to design a concept car for the 2018 Mazda 3. This was in 2007. Uh, It was actually held in partnership with Mazda and Facebook. So it was the first online social media competition. Facebook came out when I was in college. Uh, so it was kind of like America's next top car designer and it was put up for a public vote and I won. So we built my car design live on stage at the LA auto show over the course of 10 days. And that, that started
0: my career. Oh my gosh. Well, we'll have to include that in the show notes for our audience. Um, So if you search up like 2018 (laughs) Mazda three, would, would that be the model that you designed?
2: Yeah. Yeah. You'll see some oh sketches God. of it and uh, a, a much longer story. But the the way that my husband and I met is he used to run a website called Jalopnik and they wrote a story about me. So that is how we met. Wow. And many years later, we fell oh in love and God. got married and have a kid now <laughs> and talk about cars all the wow.
0: time. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, so because we have so many young listeners on this podcast, I, I'm wondering what are some of the biggest things that you learned from college and What would you say to those who are currently in college thinking about what they want to do in the future?
2: I love this question, and I go back to Notre Dame every now and then to talk to current students. And it is – it's always so much pressure. You know, you work so hard to get into college. You have this idea of what your career is going to be. And my hope is that if you look at my career – it doesn't really make sense on paper. I started as a car designer. I ended up working at Mattel. I was a toy designer. I was the creative director for Gawker Media. I ran my own consultancy uh, and then I ran for office. So I talked to a lot of kids who are, you know, poli-sci majors who want to know exactly what classes you took to get here. And the answer is I wasn't a poli-sci major. And especially in government, I think that um, we need a lot more people who are representative of All of us who have different backgrounds, who have different careers. We definitely need a lot more younger people in office. If you look at our current national leadership, uh, we need to bring the average age down. And that diversity of experience matters. So my biggest advice for young people is... You're going to be okay. There is no perfect Mm -hmm. first job. I graduated right into the recession, so I was interning at Mazda. I thought I was going to get a job, uh, and then the industry collapsed. So I ended up living in the back of my car. Uh, I worked at Urban Outfitters for minimum wage and applied to probably 700 different jobs until I finally got my foot in the door at Mattel. Uh, So that's my biggest piece of advice: is just take a step. Take one step. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just get started. You're going to learn so much. You'll learn what you really love. You'll learn what you don't. And then take the next step and the next step. And you're going to find what is right for you right now. And that might be different than what's going to be right for you five or 10 years from now.
1: It's so interesting to hear you say all this because I started college in occupational therapy because it was one of the few careers that I knew about. And so it's interesting that you were already in college when you first even discovered the career choice that you found, uh, that you chose. And I think that's so true is that when you start college, you may have one idea, but you have to stay open to expose yourself to other things that you may find that you really love. Um, You did stick with design after you graduated and you worked uh, in New York and you worked in California. Uh, Maybe it would help people who aren't familiar with industrial design. If you talk about a question that I always get asked is when you get to your desk in the morning, what do you actually do as an industrial designer? So if somebody has never met an industrial designer, what would you tell them the job actually is?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. It is a lot of research. We did a lot of trend research, trend forecasting. We would try to see what different designers are doing around the world and depending on what industry I was working with. So in automotive design, uh, we are inspired by travel. We are inspired by colors and materials and light. And if if you get into different brands of cars, they kind of feel different when you're inside based on color choices and finishes. Uh, When I was at Mattel, you know, our clientele was very different. We were designing for kids, for four-year-olds, uh, so that our our trend research was very, very different. But it's a lot of traveling to um, different shows, getting inspiration from walking around in nature, and trying to figure out how to put that into product design, and a lot of sketching. So one of the things that I learned even about myself in my first few jobs is, you know, this was something I always wanted to do. I loved the idea of being a designer. Um, but I also have ADHD. And when I started getting into the workforce, I realized that, you know, me sitting for hours at a time and drawing was really, really challenging for me. But I loved brainstorming presentations. I loved working at Mattel with our partner companies from all around the world. And I really started shifting into more of a strategy and creative direction role and out of the traditional kind of design role. Because if you're a designer, you're spending hours and hours a day kind of locked to your desk drawing. And some people love that. Uh, That was something that was really challenging for me. So I think that's a good example of even though I was dead set and it's something I'm passionate about. It didn't necessarily work for me, but I found my strength in bringing people together in um, listening to very different ideas and workshopping things and and started down the path uh, towards the job that I'm in today.
1: And and what brought you Um, from the two coasts where you were working to Michigan? How did you end up there?
2: Yeah, so my husband is originally from Michigan, born and raised uh, actually right here in the city that we live in now. He was born at uh, the same hospital that our daughter was born in. And we, um, we ended up coming back to Michigan every year because friends of ours started a road rally around the state of Michigan. You can sense the theme here. Uh, And they would invite 30 creative professionals from all around the country. We would get a bunch of cars. We would meet in Detroit and we would drive a thousand miles around the state of Michigan. It was a different route every year. You didn't know where you were going. Uh, Mm -hmm. We would bring an up and coming chef with us. And I just fell in love with the state. I fell in love with how passionate people are. Michiganders love Michigan. You will never go to a state where you see more bumper stickers on the back of people's cars related to the state that you're in. You know, Great Lakes stickers or Lower Peninsula, Upper Peninsula. People just love it. And having built most of my career between L.A. and New York, where it's very cutthroat. You know, there's a lot of people who do what you do and you're constantly competing. um, The attitude in Michigan was much more collaborative. It was what do you do? How can I help you? How can we work together um, towards... Mm a greater goal. And I was really attracted to that. So we got the opportunity and I moved us back here. I opened my own consultancy. Uh, My husband had been consulting with GM, so he was flying back and forth from the coast to Detroit. Mm -hmm. So he was able to cut some flying out of his time, but it was the best decision we ever made. And it really, I think, allowed me
1: to be the best version of myself. So interesting to hear that. Um, As you may know, the Sisters-in-Law is another podcast I do, and Barb McQuaid is, of course, from Michigan. But so is Kimberly Atkins' store, and the two of them talk about it, and they love Love Michigan totally. So um, I guess it's, it's a great state that we need to explore, and it explains why I'm wearing a Detroit hot dog as one of the pins in honor of your being on this podcast is because of that. So anyway, in addition to the rally that brought you to Michigan, um, I read that you participated in the 2018 Women's March in Detroit and began writing postcards to Betsy DeVos, and who was the education secretary at the time. Um, talk to us about that. And was that your first political involvement
2: Yeah. You know, I, I had always paid attention to politics. I like politics. Uh, I made fun of my husband though. So my husband's first job was helping Jennifer Granholm get elected governor in Michigan. Uh, Mm -hmm. and then he left politics and went into journalism and then we met, but you know, this is how he started. and, And I always kind of mocked him a little bit because he watched every single debate, not even in our own state, right? Like he just loved this stuff. Um, and I, was always kind of involved from the outset. I voted in every election. I understood the importance of local elections. I liked getting to know who was running for office. But Michigan, especially, we moved back uh, right around 2014. So we were here 2014, 2015, and then 2016 happened. And the presidential election in Michigan, Michigan just felt like a microcosm of the entire country, yeah. where this is a state that makes things. This is the home of the auto industry. This is a state that still hadn't fully recovered since the last recession when the auto industry went down hard. And it was just really hard to watch. So many of us never believed that Michigan would vote for Donald Trump. This is a purple state that leans blue, especially in presidential elections. But I vividly remember. A couple of days after the Access Hollywood tapes leaked, in which Donald Trump openly bragged about sexual assault, I watched my neighbors take down their American flag and put up a Trump flag. And these were neighbors ah. that had two daughters. And that just—I could not understand how you could turn a blind eye to this just craven attitude of of this man. So— You know, we were watching election returns come in on election night, and I had friends from all over the country texting me because Michigan was coming in late. And there was this idea that, like, Detroit is going to save the country. And that's not what happened. So a few days after the election, there was a video that went viral of middle school students chanting, build that wall, at a Latina student. And that video was shot at Royal Oak Middle School, which is my polling place. So that is where I walked down the street just a few days Mm -hmm. prior to vote for Secretary Clinton as the first female president and it didn't happen. And that just, that pushed me over the edge because these are kids. They were kids that learned that it was okay to target somebody Mm -hmm. who was different. And, and this family left the school district. They moved because of how tormented this, this girl was. And that just broke my heart. So Mm -hmm. I Googled how to run for office. Um, I found the women's March in Detroit in January of 2017. Um, And I didn't know what to expect because I was not a lifelong protester. So friends warned me. They're like, you've got to write your phone number on your arm and Sharpie. And here's what happens if you get maced and bring some milk with you. And here's what to do when you get arrested. And I was like a little bit terrified. Um, But what I found, and I think people who attended women's marches all around the country and all around the world found was that it was the opposite of that. It was joyful. By the end of the afternoon, we were singing. It was, you know, women brought multiple generations of their families, like grandparents, parents, kids, And we started networking. So I exchanged numbers and I did start hosting, you know, postcard writing parties where we wrote um, not friendly letters to Betsy DeVos, I would say. They were very critical. Uh, And just saying hi and letting her know that Michigan did not approve of what she was doing. And then I found an organization called Emerge America, which recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. Spent six months doing that genuinely thought I might help on Gretchen Whitmer's campaign because this was a new space for me. I didn't feel qualified uh, to jump in, but it was actually Jocelyn Benson, who is now Michigan's secretary of state, who said, Mallory, you've got an incredible career. Men don't do this. Men don't start at the bottom when they shift over. They run for what they want to run for, whether they're qualified or not. And I think uh, Donald Trump proved that. So she told me, run for the <laughs> office you want to run for. So my husband and I got married, and then a month later I filed... Uh, to challenge a republican incumbent in a republican district and the rest is history a year and a half later we won when which nobody thought we could do um i was the only first time candidate to beat an incumbent and
1: i've now been in the job for 4 years fabulous and tell us a little more about emerge america is that something that is a nationwide program that it is yes emerge america potential is candidates a, could use? a
2: Yep, it's a national organization, and it's specifically for Democratic women. So there's a lot of groups out there who train candidates or staff to run for office. This one is specifically Democratic women, um, and they have chapters in various states. So the Michigan one is unfortunately no longer around, but it was at the time. But it is what I really liked about it is it is a six month intensive. Training program. So we would meet mm. one weekend. We would learn how to write a campaign plan, and then we'd go away and come back a few weeks later. So over the course of the program, you built up kind of a binder of a practice run of how to raise money, how to write a stump speech, how to put a team together. Um, and I will say it's it's still terrifying when you come out the other end and you still have to figure out like how do I actually get started. But it was also just a really wonderful experience to spend so much time. With women of all ages, backgrounds, um, we had a 79-year-old woman from Detroit who was part of our cohort who said, "You know, she has seen wow. everything." And after seeing what happened in 2016, she couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore. Um, and I'm really proud. One of my my cohorts that year is Kyra Harris Bolden, who's about my age, and she is running for state Supreme Court now. And if elected, she will be the first Black Supreme Court justice in the state of Michigan, which is really exciting.
1: Excellent. OK, well, uh, we're going to put the link to that organization in our show notes so that anyone who's listening and might be considering it, including me. Uh, not that I'm really considering running for office, but but I ha- my. I don't have an alderman right now. And so maybe I would do that. But Oh, yeah. Anyway. It's
2: every level. And Jill, Come. don't say that to me because I will hound you to follow up for you to get you to put your name yeah. on a ballot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I we did run for, I ran as a Biden delegate. So that was my first foray go. into yeah. elected office. And that's how I met Victor, who's going to ask the next
0: question. Perfect. <laughs> so... In 2018, you ran for office in Michigan's 13th Senate District, and you were 31 at the time. You mentioned a little bit about what prompted you to run, but was that scary for you to run for office for the first time?
2: Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, you figure out pretty quickly that (laughs) nobody knows what they're doing, and you just figure it out as you go, and you Mm -hmm. learn more every single day. So we started out, you know, it was me, and I had hired somebody who had just graduated from Michigan State. It was her first job. I didn't know what I was doing. We were throwing it together. I, I honestly pulled out a phone book and just started calling people I thought might be potential donors because I didn't know anything about research databases or how you actually target people who might <laughs> might donate to your campaign. Um, but it grew. And eventually we started realizing that there were other people who were latching onto this. I think one of my fears, especially as somebody who was so young, that I was only going to appeal to millennials. And then we started having retired teachers come on board because I was running against somebody who was really... Negative to teachers in public education. Um, Then we started Mm -hmm. having multi-generation immigrant families come on board. And we we had postcard writing parties in our office every week. People brought their kids. People figured out how to participate. Some people made casserole. Some people like knocking on doors. And we built up a campaign of more than 500 volunteers over a year and a half. Um, And it just, that kept me going because once I got over realizing it it, yes my name is on it my face is on it but it's not really about me it's about us and it's about what our community wants and how we can all do better um one thing that i've always told anybody who volunteers to knock doors is don't feel like you have to know every detail about me Tell the person on the door why you gave up your own Saturday to come out and do this. Why does this matter for you? And we've always been very collaborative. Uh, One thing that was a really scary moment for me was a few months in, you know, I I was running my own business, it was doing well, and I was running for office. And my husband finally convinced me he's like, you know, you would, you're going to kick yourself. If you do this and you don't do it all in. So I closed my consultancy, which is really hard. I've been working mm-hmm. since I was 12. I've never not had an income. Um, and that was a big risk. And it, it paid off. And I recognize that, you know, I have enough confidence in myself that if this doesn't work out, I go back to what I was doing before, but I'm still really proud that I did it. And I got to meet so many people that I never would have met otherwise, because it's not a normal experience to go, you know, to eight cities in your area and just knock on thousands of people's doors to say hello.
0: Yeah, And it takes a lot as a young person to do that when, like you said, most of the candidates are much, much older. And having run for office, I'm wondering what you tell other young people who are running for office. I think we are starting to see a lot more um, young people run for office. What is the advice that you give them based off of um, some of the things that you learned?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's be authentically you. So one thing that we learned pretty quickly, you know, we were trying to figure out what is the driving issue, what's going to be the most important issue for voters this cycle. And I started talking to a lot of people on doors who said wow, you remind me a lot of my daughter who left and went to Chicago or New York or Denver. You know, And there was this theme that was coming up of people want Michigan to be a place where their kids stay or come back to. And that gave me an opening to say, OK, I can speak to this issue. I'm somebody who chose Michigan and we can run on the issues that are going to be the reason why people's kids stay here, why graduates from the University of Michigan are going to stay in Michigan versus going somewhere else. And that gave us, it, it turned my age from a potential weakness into a strength. And I could be authentically myself. Um, that isn't to say that we we didn't have challenges because I, I'd still to this day, you know, I am a mom now. I had my daughter a year and a half ago, but when I was running for the first time, we just got married, didn't have any kids yet. And I, I remember talking to one woman who was probably about my mom's age who, you know, she asked what why I was running, but then she really was grilling me on, do you have any kids? Are you planning on having kids? When are you planning on having kids? And then she just told me, she's like, this is not a job that a mom can do. I need somebody who's willing to do this job full time. And that really, like, that made me take a step back. Because I was running against somebody who owned multiple mm-hmm. other businesses and had developed a reputation for not really putting the time into this job that it deserved. Um, so th- so there are definitely some questions that you will get as a younger person. You know, of many of the other women that I serve with, most are much older and their kids are grown and they're, um, they don't have to balance, you know, caregiving and and running for office. But again, we need younger voices. We need people who are starting families who understand those challenges, especially right now.
0: Yeah. And like you said, you ran against an incumbent, which is always hard in politics. Uh, They have name ID. They have the money to do it. Uh, What do you think your campaign did right that allowed you to beat um, the incumbent that you were running against?
2: So I think one thing that is a, a strength to those of us who are younger is, you know, like I said, Facebook came out when I was in college. So in my entire kind of adult and professional life, there hasn't been a separation between who I am online and my work life. You know, we were kind of Mm -hmm. brought up to have an online personality, especially when I worked at some place like Gawker, you were expected to be on Twitter and you were expected to be kind of snarky. Um, And I think that that's really appealing to people is people want to get to know their elected official, especially now. And in in sort of a roundabout way, that was some of the appeal of Donald Trump was he wasn't polished. He didn't come across as a politician. And I had a lot of people um, tell me he says it like it is. I know who he is, even though he was a manufactured character on a reality TV show. But there was something to speaking in a different kind of way, um, carrying that onto social media. We were very engaged on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, and we constantly posted pictures of what we were doing and made people feel like they were involved. Um, but it, I will I will give also a lot of credit to the GOP for helping me get elected. Uh, once they, they sort of realized that we were In a competitive race, they spent so much time and money attacking me um, that our biggest challenge in 2018 was name recognition. Nobody knew who I was. And at one point, there was a mailer that went out to every single voter in our district that was poster-sized. And it had a picture of me that they had stolen from social media, drinking a margarita by a pool. And it had a curling iron on it. And the curling iron said, vote no on McMorrow. And then the Detroit Free Press wrote up a whole story about how it was the most sexist ad they've ever seen. But that was, you know, I almost don't know that they knew how to run against not only a woman, but a younger person. Because... When the Democrats attacked my opponent, it was about his voting record. Every single photo of him, he was in a suit. Gosh. When they attacked me, they didn't mention my career at all, basically implied that I didn't mm-hmm. have one. And the attack really felt like, like, look at this young, dumb girl who wants to represent you. And voters are a lot smarter than that. And I got to people's door and they're like, oh, you're that girl who like who likes margaritas. Like, I'm like yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> and it's great. So, you know, have some thick skin. You have to be able to laugh it off a little bit. Um, and we just never responded to that type of thing. And we turned it on its head. You know, it's kind of, when well, you see John Fetterman doing that really well right now, it's just kind wow. of playing into some of the attacks and not taking it super seriously. And I think those of us who are of the the very online generation know how to do that really well.
1: Boy, I listen to you. And all I can think of is during Watergate, I was always identified by what I wore. Yes. Photographs of my partners were all headshots. Mine were Mm -hmm. always full length. And it would say, Jill Weinvullner, which was my name at the time, today wearing a pink miniskirt. Yeah. And then they would get to what I asked. So, I mean, this horrible sexism, I am so sorry. I mean, that was in the 70s. Yeah, hasn't we're now gone talking fifty <laughs> years later, and it's still go. Oh my God, this is. Well, just was so, so shocking to me. I mean, Twenty eighteen w- became
2: known very quickly as the year of the woman. There were women running all around the country, many for the first yeah. time. So I just, as a creative professional, I really wish I was a fly on the wall as they were putting that piece together and wow. deciding that that was the attack because it was so it was so off. Um, But it helped us. And I'm going to frame that poster and
1: hang it up somewhere because I think that helped us win the election. (laughs) I think you should definitely should do that. It is very worth saving. And uh, of course, you've moved on from that and you have now become known to a lot of America. Uh, Maybe their first encounter with you was because of your going viral after you were accused by um, another state senator for grooming and sexualizing kindergartners. Uh, Isn't it wild? And it was a campaign. Yeah. It really, well, I mean, first of all, let me ask you about, it. it was so totally made up. How does yes. somebody do that? How do you just come from, you know, what did she allege you did specifically or did she just sort of say the well, conclusion that that without a, any basis?
2: Yeah, it's the scary time that we're in now because it feels like, there are people willing to say anything. And it's almost a competition to see who can say the most harmful, hateful thing. And there are no consequences. So we've kind of seen this this rising (sighs) rhetoric and a lot of it, and and we're going to get into a weird territory here, but a lot of it started in in QAnon, in conspiracy theories, that the basis of QAnon is that the government or the deep state is actually run by a Satanist cabal of pedophiles. And that is a terrifying thing. And friends of mine who moved to Michigan from D.C., um, they were regulars at a pizza place called Comet Ping Pong, which a few years ago— Um, we saw a gunman barge into that pizza parlor and open fire legitimately believing that there were children being held captive in a basement that didn't even exist. So, you know, now that these kinds of accusations are being pulled to the forefront and we see these attacks you know, a few months ago it was really fear-mongering around critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion and it was this backlash to the Black Lives Matter movement. Now there's a really pointed attack on specifically trans kids, which is such a small percentage mm-hmm. of the population, um, and it's just really visceral trying to sexualize and convince people that somehow teachers are trying to change kids into something that they're not, which is completely untrue. So when the accusations were lobbed against me, number one, it was by a colleague from a completely different part of the state. So I think people implied that maybe she's my opponent in this election. She's not. We're we're current colleagues. We're not running against each other. Um, But I think that she went against me and it felt like a warning shot. That if you dare to stand up for trans kids, the LGBTQ community, um, for teachers or anybody who's teaching, you know, the 1619 Project or Accurate History, that you can't be one of us. You're one of them. Because, you know, I am a straight, white, married, Christian, suburban mom, as I said a few times in my speech. And it really wasn't an attack on me. It was an attack on anybody who dares to stand up with the yeah. people that were attacking. Um, and it was just really disgusting because when you break it down, I mean, I'm a mom. This is a woman who her kids are older, but she is another mom. And this was effectively a mom accusing another mom of molesting children yeah. to try to fundraise for herself. And it was just absolutely disgusting.
1: And and you responded. You did not sit quietly and take it. Um, and we're going to play uh, your viral speech
2: Thank you, Mr. President. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd district had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me. And then I realized. Because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. Because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer, she supports pedophilia, she wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. Well, here's a little bit of background about who I really am. Growing up, my family was very active in our church. I sang in the choir. My mom taught CCD. One day our priest called a meeting with my mom and told her that she was not living up to the church's expectations and that she was disappointing. My mom asked why, among other reasons she was told it was because she was divorced and because the priest didn't see her at Mass every Sunday. So where was my mom on Sundays? She was at the soup kitchen with me. My mom taught me at a very young age that Christianity and faith was about being part of a community, about recognizing our privilege and blessings and doing what we can to be of service to others, especially people who are marginalized, targeted, and who had less often unfairly. I learned that service was far more important than performative nonsense like being seen in the same pew every Sunday or writing christian in your twitter bio and using that as a shield to target and marginalize already marginalized people. I also stand on the shoulders of people like Father Ted Hesburgh, the longtime president of the University of Notre Dame, who was active in the civil rights movement, who recognized his power and privilege as a white man, a faith leader, and the head of an influential and well-respected institution, and who saw black people in this country being targeted and discriminated against and beaten and reached out to lock arms with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he was alive, when it was unpopular and risky, and marching alongside them to say, we've got you, to offer protection and service and allyship to try to right the wrongs and fix injustice in the world. So who am I? I am a straight white Christian married suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each And every single one of us bears responsibility for writing the next chapter of history. Each and every single one of us decides what happens next and how we respond to history and the world around us. We are not responsible for the past. We also cannot change the past. We can't pretend that it didn't happen or deny people their very right to exist. I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. I want my daughter to know that she is loved, supported, and seen for whoever she becomes. I want her to be curious, empathetic, and kind. People who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape after decades of disinvestment, or that, that health care costs are too high, or that teachers are leaving the profession. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. We cannot let hateful people tell you otherwise to scapegoat and deflect from the fact that they are not doing anything to fix the real issues that impact people's lives. And I know that hate will only win. If people like me stand by and let it happen. So I want to be very clear right now. Call me whatever you want. I hope you brought in a few dollars. I hope it made you sleep good last night. I know who I am. I know what faith and service means and what it calls for in this moment. We will not let
1: hate win. So let me ask you first did you get advice on how to respond to this or did you just use your gut reaction and, and do it? Or, um, and, and the reason I particularly ask this is that one of our previous guests has now become an advisor to you. I don't know if she was at the time, Liz Smith. Was she advising you and She's helping not. you through no. this?
2: Um, no, not at all. And I, I wrote everything that I said myself. And I wrote a lot of things down and I crossed them off. One of the most insulting things um, and flattering was shortly after the speech started going viral, I saw some some guy tweet, oh, whoever wrote that speech should really run for office. And I was like, it's it's me. I did it. Um, But I I did call um, one of my colleagues, Jeremy Moss, who's our only openly gay uh, sitting senator. Um, who is also one of the younger members. I'm the youngest member of the Senate. He's a couple of months older than me. Uh, And I wanted to make sure that I was stepping into the space in a way that was respectful, that acknowledged that, you know, I come from a place of privilege because I am not actually the one being attacked. So I wanted to make sure that I was striking that balance of, yes, standing up for myself, but more so standing up for everybody who's on the receiving ends of these attacks in a way that makes sure that it's not trying to make it about me. Um, and I think that's a really yeah. kind of complicated line to try to hit, but it was really important to me because at the end of the day, um, I'm fine and I was going to be fine. I had people shortly after the attack ask me if I was going to file a libel suit against um, the, the senator mm-hmm. who attacked me, which... Sure, I might be able to do that, but I don't think that does anything to help the trans kid in my district who doesn't understand why the state hates her um, or, you know, f- families who are mixed race who want to make sure that accurate history is taught in their school and don't understand why there are all these pushes. So so that was really what I wanted to get at is like, I'm fine It's okay. Like, I felt really horrible for one day. And I sat in how horrible I felt for one day and recognized this is how horrible it feels every single day if you are on the receiving ends of these attacks regularly and you can't stand up to defend yourself. So, Jeremy, you know, as we were going back and forth the night before and I was trying to figure out what I was going to say, one of the things that he said to me was that he couldn't get up. And give a kind of rebuttal to this, because if he as a gay man stood up and said, I'm not a groomer, the response would be, OK, groomer, and the attacks yeah. would just continue. So I think he recognized that that I was the only one who could give the, the speech that I gave. Um, yeah. And I really wanted it to to take the power away from these attacks and. Um, Without hitting back, you know, I didn't name call back. So if you listen to everything I said, I didn't accuse her of being anything. In earlier versions of my speech, I had written down examples of Republicans in our state who did sexually abuse or sexually assault or or rape people and and all of the kind of hypocrisy. And I took all of that out Mm -hmm. because I wanted to get out of this Republicans and Democrats are fighting with each other in the sandbox. So in my speech, I never once said the words Republicans or Democrats. I didn't name call. I reclaimed my own identity, you know, really said who I am, but also what this moment calls for, because it's really easy to scapegoat a minority group because by definition there are fewer of them. But if more people who look like me and are privileged like me stand up and say that it's unacceptable, then it's not a winning strategy. And and that was a lot of my hope
1: um, in giving the speech that I gave. It's easy to see why your speech went viral and why you are a rising star in the Democratic Party, because that answer is just so perfect. And it's... um, It's also made you a fundraising machine. You've raised a lot of money as a result. Uh, And I hope, I I don't know, can you tell us what you're doing with some of the funds that you've raised? I think you've raised over a million dollars. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So we realized pretty quickly um, within the first... 24 hours of me giving the speech, more than 12 million people had watched it. So Hillary Clinton retweeted it. Um, I got a call from James Carville. Like, our phones just started blowing up. And people, we didn't fundraise off of that. But people found their way to my website and my campaign page. And pretty quickly, we had more donations than we needed. I had actually already fundraised. Enough by the end of the previous year to run the campaign that I wanted to run this year, so we didn't need any more resources into my campaign. Um, so I opened a pack and I started fundraising aggressively into that directly to the Michigan Senate Democrats and for the DLCC, which is the the Legislative Campaign Committee that supports right. state le- legislators all around the country, um, and and really recognizing, you know, I don't care if I'm on TV or get news coverage if there isn't an, an end goal. And my hope was how can we take advantage of this energy and attention um, to try to bring resources to a place that has been under-resourced for especially young Democrats for decades, which is state legislatures. You know, people always look at what's happening in the White House. They always look at what's happening in D.C. Um, And our races are ones that can be won or lost on. $100,000, $200,000. $100,000, $200,000. And there are races that really determine voting rights, gun violence prevention, reproductive rights, especially with this Supreme Court kicking so much back to the states. Yes. Um, so, and I think it also sends a really loud message. You know, it's one thing to give a speech that a lot of people watch. It's another thing to prove it out. And I think to prove to more people that we can stand up and fight back and be effective. So over the past three months, I have been able to raise over a million dollars towards that support of supporting my Democratic State Senate candidates here in Michigan and hopefully flipping the State Senate uh, from GOP to Democratic control for the first time in 1984, which if we can do that and go toe to toe um, on the financial resources to get it done, I'm going to feel really, really good about what we're able to do.
1: That would be brilliant. And it's something that Victor and I have talked often about is how important down-ballot races are, especially since Dobbs and all of the emphasis on action at the state level. Victor, did you want to ask maybe a final question?
0: Yeah. So in the same vein of state and local races, I'm just curious, uh, what do you think Democrats can do to rally more support for state and local elections? Are they doing enough? Um, What would you like to see happen before November?
2: You know, I think a lot of it is is—is who's running for these offices and how can we support them. I'm the anomaly, right? There are not a whole lot of state legislators who are on TV or the radio or in news coverage, but we are the ones who go door to door. We are in your community. You can actually meet with us face to face, which you can't often do with your congressperson or your U.S. senator and certainly not uh, anybody in the White House. So I think that it's incumbent on us, and I hope what I'm able to help do is, is write a playbook for state-level um, elected officials and local electeds on how we can really change how we run and how we serve to meet people where they are, to engage them in new ways uh, so that that people get to know us and they get to trust us. Because at the end of the day, it goes back to that basic, you're going to vote for somebody who you like. And you got to get to know somebody if you're going to like them.
1: And I think that from today's episode, that our audience at least has gotten to know you better. And I am sure that they will like you from what they've heard today. And we're going to be watching your career as I am sure it's going to be rising in democratic politics. And thank you very much for being with us today.
2: Thank you, Jill. Thanks, Victor. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much. This was so wonderful. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Senator McMorrow. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and that you'll tune in next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, you can subscribe wherever you follow your podcasts. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube and you should also leave us a five star review and rating on Apple Podcasts as that helps others find this podcast enormously. Thank you so much and we'll see you next week for another great episode of iGen Politics.